Good morning. This morning's reading is the Song of Solomon, 3, 6 to 5, 1. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of, of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh, almost terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its post of silver, its black of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Israel, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of, of shorn sheep and have come up with the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stones. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that gaze among the lilies. Until the day breeds and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sener and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with the choicest fruits henna and nard, nard and the saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden, fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh and my spice, I ate my honeycomb with honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Continue through our series, uh, our series through Song of Solomon. And uh, I want to invite everyone to please pray with me before we get started. Father, I pray that you would open your word to us this morning and that uh, your word would not return void, uh, that you would open 
our minds and our hearts uh, to receive uh, the treasure that's in your word, uh, that you would help us to understand it and believe all that you say, uh, that it would be truly edifying uh, to us and to our neighbors. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, so C.S. Lewis, he once said uh, that human history is the long and terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And I think that about sums up everything, so everyone can go home now, and uh, yeah, we can, we can just end now, so let's pray. I, I'm, I'm kidding, right? But, but what, what he gets at here is, is so true, and it just hits uh, the nail on the head. Uh, it's kind of the answer to our nagging question of, how, how is it that I can find happiness? How can I be happy? And we're constantly on this quest and trying to figure this out. Uh, will this relationship make me happy? Will this career, this one or this one, will it finally free me and make me happy? Or um, will this relationship or, or will this car or this house or the applause of a crowd or the approval from my dad or my mom, will this actually satisfy me? Will this fulfill me? And uh, sometimes we don't care how happiness is achieved, it's just so long as I am happy. And yet, happiness escapes us. The more we try to be happy, the less happy we are. And I think this, this common crisis and this experience that we have, that we, um, uh, that we share, um, is... It's something that we have that day by day um, we're, we're on this quest to find happiness. And this, this common everyday experience is what is unfolding before our eyes in this little tale here and this next scene of, of the song where we have um, a kind of comparison. We have uh, a tale of two weddings. And so on the one hand, there's this first wedding that's described that's, that's superficial and, and selfish. It's a selfish marriage. And on the other hand, we see a selfless, um, a simple marriage. And so which one of these marriages will lead to true happiness? Which one will lead to that happy, happily ever after, right? That happy ending that we long for. Um, which one am I finding myself in? Which, which tale am I part of? Or what, am I, what tale am I on the path to, to find? So that's what I want to look at this morning, just these, these two different tales. So first, let's start with the superficial and selfish marriage to start with. Um, and just as a, one brief, quick reminder that we're reading poetry, and poetry is kind of different. It's kind of weird in, in the sense because um, it doesn't really follow a chronological pattern. Uh, it's not so linear. And, and what it brings out, what it evokes is more of, of, of a feeling kind of like sensations. That's why there's so much description of, of all these different spices and aromas, right? And, and, and it's just thick description to evoke moods and feelings uh, from us. So verse 6 starts with, what is that coming up from the wilderness? And the word that's translated here, what, uh, is better translated as who. Who is that coming up? Since what is said explicitly mentions uh, King Solomon and describes his wedding bed, most people assume that that's the who that this is referring to. Or uh, if it's a what rather than a who, it's talking about this marriage carriage, this great wedding bed that he has. 
but it's still Solomon. So that's, that's, and it's true. This is one person that it is describing. It, it's, it's partially describing, that's, that's one person who's in view. Also, though, in verse 6, uh, we see this description, like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. frankincense. And so the, the other who that it's, it's describing is what the man is going to be describing in chapter 4. All that to say is the poet here is describing two different pictures, giving us a comparison here right out the gate so that we focus and we, and we see that there, that there are, are two different tales. The first describing the, the superficial, uh, sel- selfish marriage, and the second, selfless, simple marriage. And so let's, look at, let's talk about this first, this first uh, tale. So verses 7 through 11, we have this, uh, this description of, of a royal wedding march by uh, none other than King Solomon himself, um, a pretty giant character in the Old Testament. Um, so there's this, this long caravan that's described with the best soldiers like King David had, but, but um, even more mighty men, maybe uh, almost a double uh, as many strong mighty men as, as David had, uh, recorded in Chronicles. Uh, and there's incense burning, uh, looks like columns of smoke uh, formed in the shape of, of a palm tree. So it kind of shoots up and then spreads out like a palm tree looks. And then it describes the famous and rare woods that were used and collected and gathered um, to, to construct this mobile bed. So cypress wood from Lebanon. And then verse 10, the bedposts are made of it's a silver and, and, and um, the bottom of it's layered with gold and it's decorated in purple. Purple is not cheap. So purple um, is a rare color used by uh, only the wealthy, the elite, basically royal family. Um, uh, could decorate in purple. It was a color that came from uh, shellfish, and, and sporting it, repping it, meant that you were someone special, that you were a person of high status. So, so we should be kind of thinking right now, uh, Buckingham Palace, right? This is uh, a royal wedding. Kate Middleton or, or um, what's the other one? Ma- Meghan Markle, that's it. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, you know. I don't have daughters, so, that, you know, we're not as, but my wife's into that stuff, so. Um, but this, this royal wedding, right, um, description of, of, of the bed is extravagant and glamorous and, and signifies great importance. And no, uh, so many dollars, so, much, so many pounds were spent to host this wedding. Uh, the details are on par with the great Persian king. So if we're reading uh, the book of Esther, like I mentioned last week, um, Esther chapter 1, verse 6, uh, the description matches up with that, with uh, the Persian king, King Xerxes. Same one that, that went toe-to-toe with uh, King Leonidas, if you're into 300 and all that. So, um, same, same kind of uh, description is, is used. And, and it's a royal wedding. It's, it's the best, most amazing, and splendorous wedding you, you could ever experience. Um, a couple years ago, we went to uh, a wedding, and it was in uh, Vegas. It was at the Bellagio. And it was a truly magnificent wedding. I mean... Guests, you know, upon entering were handed champagne, and it was just, uh, it was so scenic and beautiful, and uh, the fountain, you know, famous fountains of the Bellagio where people are all lining up taking pictures out front because it's just so cool, you know, all that stuff. Well, like, this wedding had a, a private room, and so you were on the balcony on the other side, and you could see all the colors and all the fountains at night. It was truly wonderful, right? This wedding was so much better than that wedding. So that's the description we have. It just, it just 
stands out. And so the poet, he wants us to notice just the glory of Solomon's great wedding day, his expensive bed. And then we read verse 11. Go out, O daughters of, of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of his gladness of heart. Does anybody notice the focus of this wedding? It's all on who? Solomon. Uh, there's nothing of this king's love for his beautiful bride. All attention, all commentary, all, everything's at the crown, and it's all on Solomon's glory. Look upon King Solomon, the girls are told. So when was the last time you were at a wedding? Who usually gets the attention of the weddings? Yeah, like the, the groom can look pretty nice and, you know, spruced up in the tux, right? But we all know, like, nobody really cares about what the groom's wearing, right? It's always like, oh, it's the dress. Like, what's she going to wear? Like, everybody was talking about Kate, Kate Middleton and, and Meghan Markle. They didn't really care about Prince Harry and the other guy. I don't even remember the other prince's name. <laughs> See? All I know, it's all, it's all focused on the bride, right? The extravagant dress. And not this wedding, though. It's all on Solomon. It's all about his marriage. It's all about his marriage carriage. It's all about his glory. It's a very selfish wedding. It's all centered on him, on making his... It's set up towards his purposes, that marriage exists to satisfy Solomon, that marriage exists to, 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 to be the end-all and be-all to this king. And that's a sure way to wreck a marriage, to make it crash and burn. If a relationship's built... On, on riches and extravagance or affluence or, or sex or only beauty or having safety even as this, you know, commentary on the, the, the many soldiers, the guards. Um, if any of these things are singled out, that doesn't make something a good marriage. It doesn't create a good marriage. For a good marriage to last and to thrive, it can't, it can't be based on any single one of these things. And what underlines, what underlies all of these things, all the descriptions, it, is this tale of selfishness. It's about one person getting and gathering uh, and not two people giving. And so Solomon, in all of his glory, uh, is the epitome of a selfish man. He had hundreds of wives, over 700 plus concubines. And so this guy could have uh, whoever he wanted. Um, he made love to many daughters of Jerusalem and was never satisfied with all of that lovemaking. His heart was pulled further and further from the Lord, farther and farther away from finding true love and true satisfaction, happiness. And so what we, what we learn in this, this tale, in this first part here, is that even something, something as good and, and beautiful as marriage can be used for the wrong purpose. If we get married or we are married and, and, we, and make it all about us, if we, if we misuse it and live selfishly or we, or we take sex outside of the context of marriage and we start misusing it there, we run into all kinds of problems um, from not living as God intended. Uh, today, sex is an idol in our culture. Um, it's, it's a gift from God meant to be enjoyed within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. However, we have turned sex into a God to bow down to and worship in our culture. If you don't believe me, men, women, young boys, young girls, 
are all addicted to pornography at excessive rates. I mean, it's, it's becoming more of a public health crisis that um, many groups of people are, are starting to signal and say, wow, this is an epidemic, this is a problem. The sex trade is booming still, with anywhere between uh, 20 and 30 million people being trafficked around the world today. And that's because we've turned this, this, this beautiful gift, this wonderful gift, into a terrible God, and people are getting ruined. I mean, there are bodies on the floor. I mean, every 98 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted, and nearly half of all victims are children. And in the U.S., the average age of, of entry into prostitution is between 12 years old and 14 years old. 12 and 14. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services estimates that over 300,000 American children are at risk for sex, sexual exploitation. Um, so the exploitation of, of women and children that stems from hearts that are selfish, that are bent in on ourselves, um, it comes from hearts that have misused a good gift from God. What was and is supposed to be so beautiful, lovely, is often because of our sin twisted and made dirty and ugly. And so Christians should neither be sex obsessed nor sex blinded. Um, Jesus calls us to view sex and our sexuality not as a master, but as a servant, as a gift to receive from God, uh, rather than a functional savior for us to use and bend. And so as sinners, we substitute idols for the one true God who made us and alone has the ability to redeem us. As people who are saved by grace alone, we can actually use sex as God intended it for it to be used in the context of marriage and protect our neighbor from being manipulated or exploited or misused, mistreated and ruined by the God of sex that many people worship today. And so the picture that God paints for us through this great poetry, this introduction here, um, it, it, it gives us a picture that sex was never meant to be selfish, but selfless. Like the gospel, that, that, that Jesus gave himself up for us totally and unconditionally and permanently and exclusively for you. Because of his sacrifice, your body and your soul have value, you're, you're worth it to him. Um, it's contrary to the message that we see uh, that this idolatry of sex in our culture and, and that, that our hearts are, are gravitated towards that, that it preaches a different message that says that, that we're garbage, that our bodies are, are to be used up and, and, and discarded after that. That's the message we see with the porn industry. It's the message we see with sex trafficking. And don't believe it for a second. Don't believe that message. Because in the gospel, God says that you are beautiful because his son gave himself for you. Your body is now for the Lord. We're not saved so we can trash our bodies or, or mistreat others, but we hold up others as created in God's image as valuable. And so in, in Christ, you're of infinite value to God. You have beauty, you have worth, you have dignity. He's made you and he's redeemed you. Uh, giving this message to more people is, uh, who, who, who've been broken and, and bruised and mistreated 
by sexual violence and exploitation is, is why this upcoming March uh, in 2019, our church is, is going to be co-hosting a, church, uh, a conference uh, with a sister church in San Diego. It's a conference that will uh, serve to be uh, a resource for the church on sexual abuse and assault. And we want to pardon me. I think it's just for my pocket. Yeah? Okay. All right. Um, so, so we're hosting this conference because we want to see the beauty and goodness um, uh, displayed uh, rather than the message that so often people hear and experience um, so, so regularly. So I hope that you'll tell your friends and others about this conference. Uh, it's called the Valued Conference and, and share it with your neighbors uh, to share the hope that we have in Jesus who alone can free us from both the, the idol of sex as well as um, heal us from however badly we've been treated and mistreated by, by others. And so, in contrast to the superficial and, and selfish marriage of King Solomon, I want us to think about the second thing, the second tale, a, a better and more satisfying tale. So, that's, that's a, a simple and selfish mar- selfish, selfless <clears throat> marriage. Excuse me. So, let's look at verse, uh, verses 1 through 7 in chapter 4. Um, and, and right here, um, you can't see it right there. But there is a wasif right here. Whoa, what's a wasif? Anybody intrigued? Maybe? Not really? Okay. So a wasif is a common feature in Arabic love poetry. Now maybe intrigued? Um, so other, other um, poems uh, reflect this, this, these characteristics. And, and the only thing like it in the entire Bible is found here in chapter 4 and again later in chapter 5. And so what's a wasif? A wasif is a way to praise your, your beloved, to praise somebody that you love from head to toe or from toe to head, as we'll see in chapter 5. So how about that? So you can, if you're uh, you know, married, and you can do a wasif on your spouse and say, hey, here's some things I like from head, you know, about you. So, um, but it's basically an, an old way of checking someone out. That's basically what a wasif is, right? So it's like saying, like, you look good. You look real good. Here's how you look real good, right? So admiring your, your loved one. And so notice chapter 4, verse 1, he starts turning to his, his beloved's eyes, right? Her eyes are like doves. And then he moves down to her hair, right? We see your hair is, is like a flock of goats. Um, some laughter there. If you were to say that to your future wife, I can't promise that she'll take that as a compliment, Right? But I can guarantee you it was a big compliment for those Hebrew girls, man. That was like, whew, thank you. My hair is like a flock of goats. Mm. So, and then look, like uh, your teeth are like a flock of sheep, another flock. Uh, let's just, you know, step back here. For, for a girl to have perfectly, flawlessly white teeth in a culture that didn't have Listerine packets, right? Didn't have the, the white teeth, that, you know, teeth that are, you know, little trays that you put in your mouth to make them look all shiny and, you know, didn't have any of that. And her teeth were white, man, looking clean. So that's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, and more than that, though, he, he talks about her mouth, that, that her mouth is beautiful in the speech that she 
she, she, she gives off. So not just, um, doesn't just have good looking teeth, but she's, she's attractive. She has this inward beauty as well. It's not just outward beauty. She's beauty in brains. She, she talks the walk. And then he moves from the mouth to the lips and then to her cheeks and then to her neck and then to her breasts in verse 5. And he stops there at, at, at verse 5, kind of as if, as if to, uh, he's playful now, he, uh, to kind of tease to stop there in one sense. Um, sorry about this. I don't know what's. we go. Um, so he stops there uh, waiting for sort of the final act, and you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and, and he stops, though, at number seven. And, and for those of you who love math and numbers, what's so significant about, about the number seven? Anybody want to take a, take a guess? What does seven stand for? Anybody know? I hear perfect. What? Perfect, yeah. Completeness, perfection, right? It's, uh, in other words, he stops at listing, you know, these seven different body parts of her, ending with praise, the same kind of praise that he started with in verse 1, the beginning of the Wasif, and he ends with this line, you are altogether beautiful, there is no flaw in you, right? So you're, I mean, you're, you're completely perfect in my eyes. And so we're getting this, this great sense of true intimacy and, and true love for this woman. He loves her from head to toe. The groom delights in his bride. Unlike Solomon, who delighted only in who? Himself. Yeah. So what we see is a selfless love for the other person. He loves not just her body parts, but her entire person. He doesn't want to just kiss her mouth, but wants to praise her mouth. And he invites her again, uh, like we heard him do last week. Only last time she turned him down because they weren't ready to be married yet. And so in verse 8, now he says again, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. And now what we see here is this is the very first time in this entire song that he calls her his bride. First time. And it's the turning point in this relationship, in their relationship. It's the big day, the big moment where you hear the words from the minister, I now pronounce you husband and wife. You may kiss your bride, right? Oh, it's a great, a great moment, right? Wonderful little relationship here. And, and it explains his change of tone and the celebration of her smells, that he's getting close, closer to her physically. What he's longed for can finally be his. And in verse 9, I want to explain something, uh, so look with me here. Um, verse 9. Were you a little bit thrown off here by some of the language you used? Um, maybe you thought this kind of just got weird, uh, so let me, let me read it. Uh, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. Right? Anybody feel a little awkward with that one? Like, what is that about? That's kind of weird. Um, it's not weird. In, in this context, in ancient Near Eastern um, culture, and in, in ancient love poetry, the word sister did not mean what we think it means. It, it was a term of endearment, of, of noting some, some great closeness and proximity in terms of um, just, being, just being so close to a person that you're like family, right? You're li- it's like you're related by blood. That's how, that's how tight-knit they are. So they're becoming one. And, and I think it's worth pausing right here for a moment to reflect on 
Sexual intimacy should never come without the cost of everything else. What I mean by that is that in a world where people um, want the pleasures of sex without the responsibilities that go along with it, Christians say if I'm ready to enjoy the benefits of marriage, right, uh, the marriage covenant, I'm also ready to take on the responsibilities that go with it. It's both and. That, that, that in sickness and in health, in body and soul, there's a total sharing, a commitment of being with the person, the whole person. And that's what marriage is supposed to look like. And it, it treats women with the, the respect and dignity that all women should be treated with. In a Me Too culture, that's pretty significant, I think. And next we come to seeing uh, her body described as a garden in verse 12, and this garden is locked. It's secure. Uh, a garden in, 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 this, in this time period was a secret place that only the, the elite really had. Um, it was closed off and only a few people could go in. Um, and what that's telling us is that this woman is exclusive. Um, she's only to be opened by her husband after the day of their wedding. And this is another call to, to sexual purity, to waiting until marriage before experiencing the rest of the relationship. And so, where earlier in chapter 2, this man was denied access, now we see a change. Now she's accepting this invitation. Now they're together in the garden of love, and she says to him in verse 16, she says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choice, its fr- its choices, his choicest fruits. Um, it's now time to, to let love be awakened. No longer do we have to wait. Now, now it's, it's the time. And this is super cool, so I'm going to point this out. Um, so check this out. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the exact center of the song. The very middle, the very center of this, of this whole song. There are exactly 111 lines before chapter 5, verse 1, and there are 111 lines after that. That's pretty cool, right? Um, given what it's saying, too... Um, it is absolutely the climax of this song. And it's where he calls her his, you know, my garden. And she's not just a garden out there. She's no longer locked. She's unlocked and, 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 and belongs fully, they belong fully to each other. So he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And so this is the consummation of their love. And I just, it's so cool. Like, poetry is awesome like that. That, that the, the content, right, this is, this is um, where it's all, the, it's kind of led up to this moment now in the relationship, and, and now the, the, the structure of the poem itself also is saying the same thing. That's pretty cool. I don't know. I, I can geek out about that stuff. Um, but that, that's how marriage, it's telling us, right, that this is how marriage is supposed to be. It's supposed to have this beauty inside and out in every, every angle it's looked at. A total giving of oneself to the other person of selfless and sacrificial love. That's what it's, it's, it's holding up for us. And so the wait is over for these two lovers. They're married and they're able to enjoy the, the fullness of love and life together now. And what this song teaches us is that, that, that God has made marriage between a man and a woman to be this way. That it is good and it is beautiful 
And it is to be a happy ending, ending of sorts. And it should be rich and full and lovely like this. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. It may not be our experience either. Even the best marriages, because of our sin, are flawed and are broken. And some of us have never kept our gardens locked before marriage. Some of us have misused our love and have hurt others through exploiting others uh, with our, our, our sexuality. Some of us have not kept our love exclusive to our spouses. And so we've sinned. Maybe we haven't physically done anything, but like Jesus says in the Gospels, right, that we've uh, taken too long of a look at another, and we've sinned in that way. And so in all of these ways and more, we have each of us fallen short of God's law, his perfect standard, his beautiful way of what he's designed for us. And we've damaged and we've broken and we've twisted that tail, made things dark. And so to all of us, right, to you and to me, all of us who have not measured up, right, we all fall into tail one, the first part of the story, of, of having a marriage that is selfish and not selfless, that is not perfect but is very flawed and very broken. God has given us this, this picture of a, a more perfect marriage to point us to a better and deeper and, 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 and truer story, a truer tale of, of God's relentless and flawless love for us in His Son, Jesus. That even while we were still sinners who, like Solomon, was a moral flop and failure and gave in to all of his desires and was led, led away from the Lord, Christ died for us. Jesus left the riches of heaven to become poor for our sakes, that we might be rich in him. He gave up his own glory. He gave up all of the earthly pleasures and desires that King Solomon so openly embraced and that our hearts so openly gravitate towards. Power, affluence, influence, sexual fulfillment. And Jesus denied himself and went all the way to the cross for us, for you. And so now many of us, even right now, some of us might be caught up in a different, uh, in some kind of sin or some kind of fantasy. And I would say, wake up, you know, snap out of that, because that's a terrible tale. There's a better story for you. There's a better tale for you. A better adventure, a happier ending. Instead of getting what doesn't belong to you, turn to the one who never failed morally or sexually, the one who offers you, me, us, the power to wash away our sins through his body and blood, broken for you, given for you, shed for you, who promises true freedom and true happiness in him, in himself. Uh, today we're, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're invited again to come to the Lord's table where, like the lovers in this song, uh, are called and are invited to, as verse 5 says, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. That's the story that our hearts long for and, and, and that we actually get to experience and start to embrace through even this meal. The meal is a promise to us that, that soon everlasting love will be ours when the true and better king returns and invites us into the marriage supper of the Lamb at the final consummation. 
It's what our hearts long for. It's what God promises will ultimately satisfy us. It's what God holds up as absolutely beautiful, a truer and better marriage, a truer and bigger and better wedding than the one that Solomon even had. The marriage supper of the Lamb, where God invites us, come and eat and be drunk with love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for exposing uh, the tales that we get caught up in, uh, the ones that will lead not to our happiness but to our death, to denying the dignity that you've made us with, to robbing that dignity from others. Father, thank you for, for showing us a better way, a truer way, a greater king, a greater tale, a better marriage the one that you've gifted us with in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you would satisfy us all of the deepest longings that we have, that you would help us, Father, to find our, our happiness and our satisfaction in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.